Welcome to Rationalists, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the sedulous Eddie Matthews. And as a guest today, an expert on our current topic and many other topics, we have the mediative Hunter Martinez. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Good to be back in the co-pilot's chair. All right, so today we're going to be talking about epigenetics. We've got Hunter Martinez here. Could you give us uh, your background and what you're doing right now at Stanford? Yeah, definitely. So I am an immunology PhD student uh, in the program of immunology, as Morgan mentioned, at Stanford University. I'm currently in my fourth year, and I entered kind of with a focus on a certain type of cell, which we can go into if you want to know more about that. Uh, but mainly the program looks at the immune system as a whole, so that involves two compartments of your immune system, uh, the innate immune system, the adaptive immune system. You can think of those as the, the cells that fight infection immediately when they see them, and then cells that go on to form what's called memory. So that's kind of the premise around vaccination, actually. Your memory cells are kind of what protects you in the long run. That's kind of a little bit about the program, a little about what I do. Awesome. So you say you study cells. Which cell is the easiest to break out of, a jail cell or a prison cell? I'd probably enough. choose a jail cell to get out of because I've watched a couple of films, for example, I forget the one actually exactly, but he, he urinates on a, on a t-shirt and he like wraps around the bars. I think it's a Jackie Chan film. He, and he pulls the, you know, the t-shirt across the, the jail bars and it, it breaks it that way. So I, because of Hollywood's teachings, I think I would go with the jail cell to break it. Uh, is this, is this peer reviewed or is this in, in, in publication? Um, you need to hold off on citing this? It's, it's peer watched, which is not really <laughs> reviewable, but, um, you probably should hold off citating. Cite, citing. Okay, all right. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll leave it in the show notes for listeners. We'll see. All right. Well, we know your you know your stuff, and uh, I've had a few people ask me about epigenetics, and we figured it is very interesting as a topic. We don't know too much about it, but we figured you may be able to talk us through it in a way that's fun for listeners and not too complicated. I'm going to read you a definition of epigenetics from the internet, which is where we do our research on this end, and you can tell us whether or not this, this catches the gist. So, I've got epigenetics is the study of heritable changes in gene expression that do not involve changes to the underlying DNA sequence. That's, that's the basic definition that I've got on my end. And that, that, that covers it actually pretty... That's a one-liner. That was pretty, this, pretty so, impressive. So, to be fair, this is whatisepigenetics.com. So, they, they know oh, this I was. Stuff. I've heard, I've used that website for okay, reviewing myself, okay. so I think it's quite reliable. Okay, so my understanding of, of what this is, is basically the changes, so basically what I just said, it's the ability of genes to be turned on and off without completely being removed, right? So it's not like CRISPR where you're kind of slicing and dicing, it's more like environmental factors or you know un, unknown factors that are changing whether or not your body is highlighting or suppressing genes that still exist. Yeah, I think the if we if we start with the basic understanding of, of genetics, that might be important to, to guide the framework of epigenetics. So from just like early perspectives on like what's called Mendelian genetics, that's like dominant and recessive genes. If we start there, there's this understanding that certain genes are dominant over others. And before we get to that point, let's talk about humans and what we're made up of. So humans were a diploid organism, so that means we have two copies of chromosomes from each our mom and our dad. 
And each cell has a total, a somatic cell, so that means not germline, so that's not a sex cell or a cell that will be passed on to make a new organism, it contains a total of 23 chromosomes. You get 22 autosomes, which is composed of your just genes that make you up, and you have a sex chromosome, that's your 23rd. You have two sets, so that's a total of 46 in each of your cells. Now, each of those chromosomes have an allele. One comes from your mom, one comes from your dad. An allele is just a variation of a gene, and those are kind of what make us all unique at the genetic level. Does that kind of make sense, Morgan? I think I'm following along. Eddie, you, you following along? Yeah, I had a question for Hunter. Yeah. Um, so, Hunter, I've been uh, fascinated by epigenetics for years and uh, been kind of going through my favorite peer-reviewed epigenetics uh, academic journals, and I came across this study that uh, parent rats who neglected their child rats, the epigenomes of those child rats that handled stress were methylated and turned off, making them more susceptible to stress. And my question for you is that can that happen in, in human beings as well if, it's, if we're seeing this trait in rats? Yeah, so a lot of our, our models of how we produce medicines or how we generate ideas of how our, for example, our immune system works in humans are actually done in rodents, similar to this. This was a neurological study, you said, about stress-induced uh, yeah, changes. Yeah, I, I watched a five-minute TED-Ed uh, video, and it had this in it. I, yeah. I watched that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to answer your question, yes, uh, there is tons of evidence that a lot of the diseases we have as a human population cannot just be explained by what's called genetic variation. So that could be a single mutation that causes what's called a synonymous mutation. So that means the, the actual DNA sequence changes, but it doesn't change the protein uh, amino acid. A non-synonymous mutation would be a mutation in your DNA gene that then results in a change in your protein. So that is potentially a way that you get a disease, right? If a person gets a mutation and then it accumulates and gets passed on to their offspring, that could be some variation that causes a disease. Um, but a lot of autoimmune diseases and even cancers are not just caused by a single mutation. It could be a collection of mutations, or it could be these other factors, environmental or epigenetics is kind of what you're getting after here. So in the context of being mistreated by your mother, yes, it's definitely a possibility that could be a permanent quote-unquote mark and what you refer to as methylation. So now let's go back a little bit. I talked about gene expression. That's just at the level of you know your two chromosomes from your mom and your dad. One of those genes will be expressed in your body and be working. But there's further modifications, that's what epigenetics is, to affect its expression. So the way I was understanding this, my analogy was going to be a highlighter and then like a blackout pen. So like the yeah. book exists, it's always going to be with you, you can't tear out pages, but you can yep. highlight things and you can kind of black things out. Is that more or less what's happening for, for lay people? Correct. You have, you have the permanent text of the book, it, it won't change. Epigenetics is not, is not, not, not that. The text of that book is your DNA. That's exactly right. That metaphor okay. worked perfect. Right. Is it, uh, can, are, um, epigenomes, because I've, I saw the term epigenetic imprints. Can you clarify, like, what the imprint is versus the epigenome? So, imprinting would be changes, so to the epigenome, in terms of what you're defining, you're saying changes to the epigenome. That could be a variety of things. That could be methylation, like you described. That could be induced by, Another gene making a product that then makes an enzyme that targets some site to methylate it. It could be a chemical, so like um, something in the environment. You could be maybe breathing in, um, let's say, for example, I live in Bay Area. It's smoggy sometimes. Maybe I'm breathing in too much particulate, and that causes some change of gene expression that then permanently 
is instated onto a cell's epigenome and makes it permanent. Uh, you can envision maybe stress from your mom. You know, you're getting yelled at at the time because you didn't take the trash out. And over time, that gets permanently ingrained in you. To That's take the example. trash out? To take the trash out. <laughs> <laughs> but your epigenome is going to remember too. That's a, that's a personal example because I wasn't very good about taking the trash. I see, I see. You're, so, okay, so let's get into some of the fun stuff here. So I know epigenetics, it seems like it's pretty new. It seems like people are just now kind of realizing the effects. It's more about studying them than kind of utilizing this to solve things at the moment. Uh, but that's sort of the next step. I've seen a number of studies that kind of reflect what Eddie said, that you know, an environmental factor, so let's say there's a famine, you, that will cause your body to cut off from certain traits for nutrients. You're more just looking for survival. So certain dramatic yeah. events or specific repeated factors like smoking can turn things on and off in your life. And then there have also been studies that show that this can carry on, even though they're not actual genetic changes, this emphasis, this highlighting of specific genomes yes. or genes can be carried over to your offspring, your children, and your children's children. And I think that's more of a, it's up in the air whether or not that can happen or does happen, but we've seen that in rats. Yeah. Um, so, and so, yeah, what, what does the evidence show, and can this actually happen? Can a famine 100 years ago impact my ability to eat grapes or something like that? I'll, I'll speak to the examples that I'm aware of in the literature. Um, mm -hmm. So the origins of this concept are actually quite old. I say old because, just for reference, the field of immunology is a young science. It's the 1900, it's the 19th century, 20th century type. It, those ideas, germ theory was in the 1800s. Like it's a relatively recent field of science, as a, compared to chemistry, for example. So the idea of epigenetics actually came in like the 50s, and early on, people knew that there wasn't something quite right with just explaining variants by uh, mutations in your DNA. And the early studies were actually done with Drosophila, which are fruit flies. And you could take Drosophila larvae and you could put them in different temperatures or, for example, put them in different humidities or do different things with nutrients that they were fed when they were being laid, as, um, when the mother was laying the egg. You could then look at the offspring and you could see traits that were like difference in wing size or differences in like the, the pupil size or, or some other you know, things you can measure. That early on suggested, well, they're genetically the same. We can, we can check that, but they have different traits. So what explains the variance? That's kind of where the concepts came from. So the early studies would suggest, yeah, indeed, if you put the mother pregnant, probably under stress, or even post, uh, post what is it called, post-pregnancy, you would have the ability to maybe influence the offspring that that trait might be passed on. Now, if people closely looked at that in rodents, I would have to read closer, but the, the Drosophila or the fruit fly is a pretty strong example of that happening. They grow faster is why people study Drosophila. So. From an evolutionary perspective, would this seem as like an adaptation that would allow for quicker adaptations rather than having to pass it on, you know, a mutation to offspring over multiple generations? You could adjust to your circumstances in within your own life rather than having to survive, pass on, survive, pass on. Yeah, I think that would be how I would frame the argument as to why does this exist. Mm -hmm. I think it's the classic, you're responding to a stimulus and your genes are ex expressed now given given a new stimulus. Now, the question what you're saying, though, is would, that, would your famine now influence your offspring and their ability to eat a grape? I don't know many pieces of literature that would support that claim, but we just discussed rodents and we discussed fruit flies so I would I would say yes. I'd hypothesize it definitely would make it make a difference. 
Now, getting a cohort of humans to study that, it's a long study. You're talking, you need multiple generations. Well, not anyone's going to be alive to finish that study, unfortunately. Well, it's, we're not going to give them a famine for too long. I would move them around so okay. we can study them. <laughs> okay. So, uh, in talking about, uh, kind of segue maybe into talking about COVID a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, COVID's been a stressful time for many of us. Wait, what's COVID? Uh, I don't know if our listeners know. Can you don't even. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, uh, I got a, a socially distanced beer with Morgan the other day. Been uh, drinking more during COVID with all the stress. And while I could, you know, blame my increase, uh, you know, my, my new bit of a drinking problem on the stress of coronavirus, I'd much rather blame it on my father. Is it possible that, uh, you know, gene- like genetic, uh, epigenetic imprints could have been, you know, passed on? to my generation so like a father who drinks heavily in his 20s if he had kids in his 30s that could be passed on to the next generation hypothetically Hypothetically. (laughs) (laughs) okay we'll go with the eddie matthews example of you want to explain you drinking a beer and your habits of drinking a beer he mostly just really wants to blame his dad sounds like that's fine i'm just looking for reasons to yeah have a grudge against my father Oh, okay. I think to hold a grudge against your father, there are so many complexities there. Yes, a subset of your influence probably is epigenetic, but there's other things too going on. They're like neurological and, and, and physically uh, being half your dad's, you know, genomes in you. That also might make a difference. You know, certain traits are genetically encoded for sure, like you know, color of your hair, color of your eyes, things like that. But maybe even other things that they're starting to realize might be genetically encoded different combinations of alleles maybe make you high taller or you know there's lots of changes but yes hypothetically we will entertain that idea that you could be hold, hold that grudge yell at your dad be like my epigenome is your fault father hunter says <laughs> we have a ph we have a stanford phd immunologist <laughs> dad that tells me that my increase in drinking is your fault i can say that basically yeah a little citation <laughs> I like it. Excellent. Well, should we talk about um so Hunter being an immunologist, uh can you tell us a little bit about what your uh you know impression of this new strain of COVID that they found in the UK is and can you just give us the rundown on that? So you might have to bring me up to speed. Last time I read, it was a mutation that wasn't going to thwart the current vaccination efforts. Is that correct? Is that that same mutation? Yeah. Okay, so how the current vaccine strategy is, is employed, the different vaccine strategies, do we want to go over that together as a... Sure. Okay, so the, the current two vaccines that you guys are going to be seeing in the news are the Pfizer and the Moderna. Um, the other one is called AstraZeneca Oxford. It's from the UK. The Pfizer and the Moderna one are both what's called mRNA vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, Remember, the direction information is encoded. It goes from DNA to RNA to protein. And a virus is basically made up of proteins on its surface, a lipid layer, and then messenger RNA inside of itself. So the, the way the Moderna vaccine works is you get injected. The messenger RNA goes into your body. It makes in your body fake virus proteins that then your immune system sees and responds to it. And that's what the vaccine developed by both Moderna and Pfizer employs. So that strategy is what they're using. Um, 
Does that kind of set you guys up for a framework of, of those two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does the other one do? So uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca one, you probably heard about in the news like a, six months ago, mm-hmm. was leading. It just didn't have as good, I think, efficacy or safety. I, actually, I think it did. I don't know why it didn't take off, but it's a More sub-unit. complicated name. Yeah. Double I hyphenated. Think, I, I think it is a adenovirus. So that just means it is a, a DNA virus with a uh, an envelope protein, I think, from baboon. We can talk about why that is. <laughs> Uh, but then you give it, and it does the same thing, except a little differently. It goes from DNA to RNA to uh, to protein, and I believe that is how that one works. And okay. those are just different strategies you can employ for vaccination for COVID. Yeah. And they have similar efficacy. That's a great question. Uh, the I, I mentioned baboon. I'll touch on that with efficacy. You what's called pseudotype a virus. Pseudotyping just means uh, making it infectious against a certain species of mammal cells. For in our case, we're mammal. Baboon envelope virus was used because that protein is known to be, it shouldn't have ever been experienced in our fake virus. This is the vaccine, fake virus should have never been in a human population. So there's no neutralizing antibodies against the baboon envelope. Does that make sense? Imagine if I gave a virus that we've all seen mm-hmm. and I tried to vaccinate you against something, your yeah. immune system would just see the pseudotyped surface proteins and neutralize it. It would never make it to becoming uh, a message and making protein to vaccinate yourself against it. So you, gotcha. that's why it was baboon, because why the hell would anyone have that in their body? I'm going to have to get a different vaccine. To <laughs> <laughs> uh, so kind of, um, you know, connect the rationalist universe, is it possible to use CRISPR to make like vaccines in the future by like I don't know editing our own genes or editing people's genes immunity against viruses or is that way too complicated than just taking a couple years and manufacturing a vaccine like like we are doing right now yeah gene editing so CRISPR as a platform can do two things you can use it to knock out a gene so cut you know, scissors, cut out a little piece of the message, or in Morgan's paper metaphor, cut out some sentence you don't like. Origami, that's what they call that. Okay. Or there's actually other systems now where you can take the enzyme involved in CRISPR and you can dock it onto what's called a promoter of a gene, and that will drive activation of a gene. Now, those two systems, those are called, you know, CRISPR, not just CRISPR knockout or CRISPR activation, probably wouldn't be useful for vaccination for two reasons. One, there is no native virus in my DNA that you'd want to use CRISPR-A to knock it out or even activate it because I don't have that in my body. It has to be foreign, which then in that case makes CRISPR irrelevant in that situation. Maybe in the future you could use CRISPR, and they're doing this now as a diagnostic. There's a recent paper that came out, I think, this last couple months about making CRISPR identify the, the RNA in COVID and then you use that to like turn a certain color and then that becomes useful. So they're using CRISPR. Uh, I just don't think it'll be used for generating a vaccine. Is uh, at immunology conferences, is CRISPR still like a great icebreaker with all you guys? Hey, what's up? Uh, you guys into CRISPR? Is that a good I, way? I would say it's such an acronym that you just throw it around. I, I don't think a lot of people actually remember what even, hell, I don't even know if I remember what it means anymore. Something like clustered, re, uh, something interpalindromic space. I don't remember, but I know what it does. And I, yeah, people toss around like it's, any other word in the field now. Okay, Everyone knows so, what it does, but no one actually remembers the details on everything about it. 
in terms of cool, futuristic, immunology, genetic, kind of newfangled ideas, epigenetics, CRISPR, anything else? And how would you, how would you rank them? Things that have the potential to be game changers in the next 20, 30 years. We're talking about vaccine strategies. We're talking I'm about just saying human. Anything, you want to edit a human. I don't want necessarily want to edit. I'm just saying things that could, I know cancer is always the one that people bring up where it's like everything gets related to cancer, but I'm saying things that yeah. could change the way we run healthcare centers or we treat diseases. So personalized medicine is like the thing everyone yells about. Everyone wants to do personalized medicine. That just means like if the person comes to the clinic, the therapy is specific to only them, it'll only work for them. In that situation, like knowing the person's epigenetic status in some cell type, I personally cannot see how that'd be very useful. For cancers, it's very useful. Um, there are a class of drugs called what's called an HDAC, a histone deacetylase enzyme. Uh, we didn't talk about that. I'm sorry, I just dropped that acronym. It's okay. My, our listeners are very well, well, well briefed. The the potential for them, they can do what's called modify. They can they can modify histones. If we want to go into that, that takes us back to the what is epigenetics section of the podcast. Point being, yes, there is some potential use to do therapeutics based around epigenetics. Now, in the field of, I'll just do the field of science I'm in. In immunology, I I think the biggest therapies right now are going to be what's called cellular therapies. So that's where you take someone's cells, put something in, and give it back. Now, that could be modifying epigenome. Definitely an option with a small molecule or with some like virus that makes the cell make some sort of RNA or something that modifies its epigenetics. I would say the big future thing that people are trying to do are, are doing what's called adoptive cellular therapies, where they, they take cells out and then adoptively transfer them back into their, to their body. And there's lots of cells you can do that with. In fact, you can do it with stem cells. You can do it with the myeloid compartment of the immune system. That's kind of like the innate compartment I mentioned early on. You can do it with the adaptive immune system. That's a, like a T cell, for example, or a B cell. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty game-changing thing that just came up. Like, you know, CAR T cells, I think you guys talked about one time on your guys' podcast. Th- those are like the, the future of therapies, I'd say. So this podcast is on the cutting edge is what you're trying to say. I'm pretty sure yeah, we you decided in the article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm saying you guys are with it. Eddie and Morgan, keeping it, keeping it real. That's Correct. why we had to bring you on, so so you could uh, dumb it down for our listeners. We didn't want to talk over there. <laughs> and to stoke our egos. That's all we're about. All I have is a fan, and you guys are on fire. So, Okay, well, we've got you here for a couple more minutes. Is there anything you want to talk about in genetics that you think is just very interesting, or anything to do with COVID, or anything you think the listeners might enjoy? I mean, COVID is, like, beaten into us via yeah. the news cycle, media... TikTok, whatever platform you're on, it's there. I, I mean, hell, if you want to have it on your podcast, we can go for it. But I, I'm gonna maybe not go for it on the on the COVID. Okay. Okay. No offense, COVID. You've killed a lot of people, and I'm just gonna ignore you, like our president. But it turns out you can't ignore a virus. That's not a good way to treat viruses. Leave it at that. If I were to go with something, I'd finish up with. I think the future of medicine, in terms of what I was talking about, with cellular therapies, is is an option. But we need better tools to actually work with cells. Uh, to give an example, you're, you're limited by how much information you can put into a cell. So you guys are talking about CRISPR. How that's delivered, you can do it by what's called a uh, ribonuclear protein. So you like put the protein outside the cell and you try to like use electricity to push it in. Or you can make a virus, and then the virus will carry all the material it needs to make the CRISPR and all that stuff into the cell. But you're limited by size. So you can only transfer so much. And so one of the hugest, largest, that's hugest is not a word, largest issues we face is like 
we're limited by the size of the virus, what it can package. So if there were to be something like uh, unlimited packaging size, oh my gosh, you could do a lot potentially. Okay. Unlimited packaging size. All right. I don't, I don't <laughs> it might not mean anything to anyone, but no, it sounds interesting. And it makes sense. I mean, basically, I, correct me if I'm wrong. You're basically saying like we have a lot of very cool treatments that can do a lot of things, but they're so specific and they are on such a small scale that we just can't do them at an efficient rate or a rate quick enough or effective enough. I was sticking with the adoptive cell cell therapy treatment of medicine that I'm I'm excited about personally. Uh And one of the things you're limited with are the tools to actually manipulate the cells. That would be one future medicine question. Is there anything that seems like it might solve that problem? Like are there people trying to come up with new tools or... A great question. I read a paper about uh, these viruses that live in the soil. Okay. They're called megaviruses. They're kind of scary because they're like really freaking big. They're well named then. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> but they can package like their genomes are like megabases. Okay, so put that in perspective. The viruses I was just talking about are uh, 10 kilobases. That's 10,000 bases, base pairs of DNA they can put inside themselves. Megabase is like millions, 10 million, 2 million. It's It's massive. So if you can imagine the genetic material, you could you know go in and put in if you had that type of packaging power. You can introduce more things. It'd be the difference between the first book of Harry Potter, Sorcerer's Stone, and like the last book of Harry Potter. This in terms of the text. If the DNA metaphor is irrelevant here, okay, you're talking reading that sixth grade level. I was like, are there magician bases? <laughs> <laughs> Did Voldemort have secret bases? No, just using your metaphor of the I text see. being DNA. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So where does uh, your career and like the career of your colleagues, once you guys are done with the PhD program, where does uh, an immunologist uh, go into? Like, what does that look like career-wise, day-to-day? Where are you off to next after this program? Personally, I'm undecided, but I can give you examples of colleagues of mine. Industry, and what I mean by industry are private companies. So you can think of Pfizer, for example, their private company, Moderna. Those are the two we talked about for COVID vaccination efforts. And that would be, you work as a staff scientist, you have a team of people, you make a drug or you make um, RNA vaccine, uh, for example. You could do what's called a postdoctorate fellowship. That means you work at a university under a PI, kind of like a graduate student, but you're a little more independent and you get paid a little bit more. It's continuing continuation of your training to then go on to become a principal investigator. That means you're like a head scientist at a research lab at a university. PIs can also be, of course, in industry as well. Uh, after that, you could go maybe into law. You could do what's called patent work, patent attorney. So like people with a science background, they make drugs all the time. And a patent attorney is very useful to understand like, oh, I know a little bit about this pathway because I studied it. I can give you my hot take on the science. Plus, I can advise you on the law and the patents that are out there. Uh, people leave the field of science. Uh, I'm considering doing that. You know, there's lots of opportunities out there. You don't have to stay in science. It, frankly, it teaches you how to think more so than anything else. Uh, and develop experiments and develop like a plan of action to follow up on. And, oh, policy. Policy is a huge one. So right now at the federal level, there's not too many people that have a secondary education in science. I don't think actually. That's an option though. Policy is very important. Okay. Dr. Fauci is a very famous person who's involved in policy and he's a doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, if any of our listeners are looking to hire an immunologist, We'll, we'll pass along our information. They can read yeah, it. or or we could start a think tank. Yeah, we could start a think tank, rationalist mm-hmm. think tank. You got a good mm-hmm. name, ready to go. And just lean on the weight of the Stanford brand. <laughs> open doors for us. 
I think uh, Hunter could be our front man as well. Let's just say for the ladies, he's single and he's got a face for for the vaccine. If Pfizer was like, we need someone to go on TV, take the vaccine so that people feel comfortable, let's just say Hunter would be up there. That's a call out. That's a call out. It's one of the downsides of podcasting. Actually, usually it's a benefit because people don't have to look at me and Eddie, but when Hunter's on, it's a real negative. Now now the listeners just have to trust your description (laughs) of Hunter. (laughs) Great. All right. Well, anything else? We'll have to have you back on. I don't know if there are any other subjects you'd like to talk about in the future that you think are interesting people should read up on in advance. I think the, the study that Eddie pointed out would be interesting to follow up on further. Like these interesting studies on nature versus nurture are always fascinating to me. There's elements of epigenetics buried in there. I'd have to read up more as to there's this is like clinical psychology involved with genetics and epigenetics. It's it's a, it's like kind of a, a deep dive if we were to go into that nature versus nurture argument. But that type of that type of science is quite interesting to me. All right. Yeah. One thing I'd like to see is uh, just more like university departments with interdisciplinary approaches to these problems because like you think about um, developing a vaccine and then distributing a vaccine are two entirely different uh, like areas of expertise, but are desperately like both needed um, and need to work together. So it'd be cool to see that in like a microcosm at each institution. I don't know. Is Stanford like better about being less siloed when it comes to, um, Kind of, you know, facing problems like epigenetics or whatever. Like, are you in in conversation with psychologists and et cetera? We we have programs that are under all the PhD programs are under bioscience umbrella program. So yes, you can have like, relationships with other faculty. Biosciences doesn't include it does include psychology. I don't think it does, but it has you know neuro, neuroscience. So that would be in there. And I know people who do autoimmune diseases of the brain. Like my roommate does autoimmune diseases of the brain. And so you have a relationship with your advisor who's in the neuroscience program, and they would tell you about any sort of relevant neurological data that they would be able to, you know, or input they would be able to provide for your project. So it's definitely collaborative, like you said. And just an interesting thing you talk about logistics. I mean, the vaccine effort is going to be interesting to see. We're already behind for giving out doses, but, like, it's not an issue of making them. It's, it's distributing. I mean, it's one of the interesting things, I think, with so much specialization, particularly in the medical field, it's almost as if you you are at a disadvantage in collaborating with other scientists and other researchers because your studies are so specific and so nuanced and niche that you know just explaining your work to someone in psychology or political science or whatever is going to take a really long time and it's not necessarily going to be something that you get a publication out of. So I don't know if you think that the incentives are misaligned. I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on how we can improve interdisciplinary collaboration around science in a way that allows for things like anti-vaccinations and other types of science-related behaviors to be better investigated. The I think one of the huge issues you, you face was when I interviewed, I said I was interested. I had an environmental science background of the concentration of chemistry, right? Nothing to do with immunology. You get like this pushback on some programs in institutions where they're like, oh, you didn't train in the field of science you want to enter. Therefore, you're not like passionate or you're not necessarily well endowed to be in this program. Well, the Stanford approach, when I, inter- when I interviewed, they're like, oh, it's interesting to have a person's background be different than that of just immunology. 
And so from that perspective, yes, I think they are better right now in terms of attracting a, a wide plethora of backgrounds, scientific backgrounds. Now your question about are they effective at collaborating? That's more Eddie's question. That is again what Morgan's gonna be after. These questions are so nuanced to get like a neuroscientist and an immunologist and a genetics person for epigenetic reasons in the room all talking is gonna be dependent on the honestly the student because that's your committee. Usually that's like driven by the student. Some faculty have relationships, but it is not as common as you guys think. We also have to remember like money is involved, grants. So like PIs will be both on one grant. So there's inclinations to only work with another PI that you have money with. Why would I work with this other guy if I don't have money or her, excuse me? Uh, and you, you know, you could have like, you could have a lot of situations that don't pan out because of money, frankly. Um, you could also have it because you don't want to give your competitor, there's competitors, your idea. So you don't want to work with them. Well, I work in political science, so I'm used to not having to worry about money because it's not an influence at all in any of the political sciences. So, what so, about so. <laughs> what about like basically getting uh, ideas from other people? I know, I'm just kidding. It's a massive problem, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's that's all of Dude, academia. The, the sarcasm went right over here. I didn't get it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it would be. I'm sure there are. I've seen a few grants. I, I know some of the main. Social science journals do make a concerted effort to encourage collaboration on specific articles, but it's much, much less of a you know rewarding or potentially high reward proposition than just staying within your field and publishing specific things. Even within political science, I mean, the more niche you become with scientific expertise, the more you're going to be seen as a non-political scientist. Um, and I think that's how it is with, with other fields as well. It also seemed like there's this missing component to uh, the people who are going out and in, in, uh, making breakthroughs in a, in a highly specialized field, which you need a highly specialized expertise to do to make those breakthroughs in the lab. And then the people like making policy, there's a missing component of like somebody translating that research into like understandable, uh, I think nomenclature for the policymakers, and then like advocating for that. I guess it. I don't know. Do you have you come across that problem too? So you're talking about I let's say I find uh, a pathway in an immune cell that I want to like therapeutically go after, and I find a drug, and I get like a funding group to fund me, but then I need some some sort of policy to be changed, so then I can actually implement this treatment. Is what you're getting after? Yeah. So scientific writing fills a lot of that void. One of the one of the issues I have with scientific writing, pop culture science writing is always very very um, can be it, it's hit or miss. You can have someone who has a very good understanding of science and is a horrible writer, or you have the reverse, a really good writer and just writes horrible pop science. Both don't fill the void. Both even coexisting don't fill the void of what you want because you're saying we need to convince a legislator that like oh this genetic therapy treatment might actually save a lot of lives, but the law says we can't do it, or we want to make a slight trip. You know, I get what you're saying. I don't know how to actually circumvent that issue. The other thing is academic journals are paywalled, and they're getting worse and worse to be paywalled. In fact, to publish in Nature now, I think you have to, pay, you have to spend money. Like You have to spend like $12,000 if I want to publish in, in that journal. It's, it's an issue that I think has stemmed from, frankly, there's a lot of shitty science papers out there. I don't know if I should swear. I'm sorry. A lot of poorly written and like not well documented papers out there that get muddled in 
with the rest of the literature. And now as a researcher, as a student, I am forced to have to read 20 papers and come to a conclusion of which ones of these are not fraudulent. That makes it seem intentional. There's no intent. Um, what I'm talking about is papers that are one-offs because I go to try it and it never works. It's a huge issue in the field. Uh, and so it doesn't matter if I write a good piece and I go to the legislator and say, look, we have this evidence. The translation of that may not be done by me, maybe done by someone else. That's kind of what you're getting after. And I, I don't know how to fix that. If you guys have ideas, I would love to hear it. Maybe one, I, I, I don't want to make you talk too much about uh, COVID Hunter, but I feel like there's one follow-up question I wanted to ask is that you said that production of the vaccine right now isn't the problem, it's distribution. What do you mean by like that? Do you mean that we could have 200, 300, or 400 million doses right now? We just can't get them out to people? Or uh, the production still takes a timeline, right? Let me speak to what I know about the comment I made about distribution and logistics. The vaccine production, you're absolutely right. I don't have an, a good estimation. I kind of spoke. I was thinking of something else when I said that. Logistics is what I was referring to. I think, I think the production is not necessarily limiting only because I know logistically you have to like distribute it cold and you need to put it into like refrigeration trucks and it needs to be kept at a certain temperature. I want to say they're able to make plenty of doses. One of the biggest problems I think right now is keeping it cold and then we have to get it to the hospital and get it in the fridge. It's not stable. Uh, the, that's what I meant by logistics. Now, you're probably right. They're probably actually more, there's probably a chokehold right now on production, but I also knew if they had to ship on dry ice, so that's like keeping it below minus 70 degrees Celsius, we were going to like, basically take the entire world's supply of dry ice if you wanted to ship it worldwide. And that was a logistic issue at the time. Now, I think they just use refrigeration trucks. I don't think it needs to be below minus, well, minus 20, I don't think, because like a standard freezer temperature. That's what I meant. You're absolutely right. They use big, big, like massive bioreactors to make the virus or to make, excuse me, the mRNA, and they make the reaction to make it little vesicles. But the logistic component of it is refrigeration, like you said. Who's going to be the supplier of refrigeration trucks? Who's going to pay for that? Is it the government? Do you, yeah, you can imagine the complication. Not, not with my tax dollars. I'm just kidding. Vaccines are, are an interesting concept actually from a governmental, uh, they're actually almost all of them are, so no company will willingly make a vaccine. I don't know if you guys knew this. You can't name me a single vaccine that is made willingly. It is due to the fact that you're giving a healthy person a treatment that they're only going to get once. There's no, why would you, you're not going to make money off this. And second, it is like a public health need. So basically the government pays for this and they also pay for the vaccine court in the United States that gets all the injury lawsuits. What if we start making just borderline effective vaccines and everyone, you need to get a new one every other year, sort of like the flu vaccine? <laughs> The influenza vaccine, I'm pretty sure, is also subject to, um, I use the word handouts. What's it called? Not levying. What's the word I'm looking Subsidies? for? Subsidies. Subsidies. Thank you. Yeah. So, there's contracts between yeah. a company and the government. They'll say, we'll buy a million doses at market rate. Can you make these? Or some, some rate yeah. above market rate. Mm -hmm. And we'll make and deliver these doses by November of 2021. You know, I think I've heard something. Maybe uh, we should create uh, some sort of government agency that just tries to do prevention and make it so that we uh, we don't get these diseases in the first place. Have you ever heard of, of some sort of pandemic response team, or maybe we can we can create something like that? 
Staying apolitical, I would agree. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. Are you saying it's a bad idea for the head of the COVID task force to throw rallies in the midst of a pandemic? I didn't catch that at all from Morgan's statement. <laughs> We're going to get Hunter fired. <laughs> all right. Well, should we wrap this up? We're going to ha- we'll have you on again sometime soon when we have more, uh, maybe closer to the vaccine delivery date. If there are more issues with people not taking vaccines or something like that, that comes up. Uh, we can see you willing to definitely let us know if you ever have something you want to talk about. Otherwise, this has been great. Thanks for coming on, Hunter. Thank you for having me, Morgan and Eddie. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Rational listeners, follow us on Twitter. Reach out. Happy holidays.